Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Once upon a time, at the apogee of the Cold War, the CIA recruited the best and the brightest from our most elite universities. The likes of George H.W. Bush, James Jesus Angleton, William Bundy, and even Porter Goss all owed their allegiance to God, country, and Yale. And Harvard also had its share. These universities were, as someone once referred to them, a nursery of spooks. But today, like everything else, espionage has its own creative destruction. Today, colleges and universities are still at the epicenter of espionage, but it's all been impacted by globalization, technology, the free flow of international students and professors, and yes, 9-11. It's as if the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about is now the military-industrial-intelligence-and-university complex. Bringing this all into bold relief is my guest, Daniel Golden. Daniel Golden won a Pulitzer Prize for his Wall Street Journal series on admission preferences to elite colleges, which became the basis of his best-selling book, The Price of Admission. He's written extensively on how U.S. companies have dodged taxes by moving their headquarters overseas. And he was a 2011 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about for-profit colleges exploiting veterans, students, and the homeless. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Golden here to talk about spy schools, how the CIA, FBI, and foreign intelligence secretly exploit America's universities. Daniel Golden, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. Great to have you here. There's a long history of espionage agencies, the CIA in particular, being involved with universities. Talk a little bit first about that early history, about the earliest recruitment of, of kind of the best and the brightest. Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, dating back to the days of the OSS, uh, the CIA's precursor, uh, there was heavy university involvement. It was, it was really kind of born out of Yale, and, uh, and they were very, uh, very close. Um, and then, uh, as, as you, you know, what happened was there was a kind of giant split in the 60s and 70s, and there became a lot of uh, hostility and, and a gulf between them. Uh, culminating in the Church Committee investigation in the mid-70s, which found that uh, at least 300 academics were secretly helping the CIA by providing leads and introductions and so on. And and there was a backlash against that, and Harvard uh, adopted a set of guidelines that said no, uh, you know, no professors or students could um, could uh, undertake intelligence operations for the CIA. Or uh, help them unwitting, help them recruit unwitting foreign students, and you know that was kind of an opportunity to uh, uh, kind of establish academic freedom. But the problem was uh, hardly any other universities adopted the Harvard guidelines, and the CAA made clear that it it wasn't going to pay any attention to them and didn't think that they uh, you know had any uh, validity, and so. Since then, uh, there there started to be a gradual reconciliation, and then after 9/11, the pace really picked up, and again, and again now universities and uh, U.S. intelligence are very close. Um, you know, and there's a lot of proliferation of, of intelligence community and Pentagon funding for for universities, for for curriculum, for research, and other things, and and there's a whole you know new network of ties and. And as you mentioned, it, it, it's not simply that it's come full circle because globalization has made a huge difference. So, uh, you know, we now have about a million uh, foreign students and hundreds of thousands of foreign, you know, scientists and researchers and, and professors. And, uh, you know, some of them are here to, uh, you know, 
uh, gain access to sensitive research or or cultivate sources on on U.S. Uh, you know politics and economic policy. But uh, at the same time, the FBI and the CIA are very interested in recruiting, uh, you know, well well connected uh, foreign students and professors and sending them home as our agents and. Well, in the early days, you know, you know, and then still now, the recruiting of U.S. citizens by U.S. intelligence is is over. You know, they say who they are. The recruiting of the foreign students and professors is often, you know, covert and clandestine. And and uh, you know, my book uh, kind of focuses on this uh, exploiting of foreign students. So so globalization has uh, has changed the picture a lot. But uh, and and the other aspect of it is because the U.S. Uh, because of the change mood in the country and the uh, financial relationships, uh, universities turn a blind eye to all this, and uh, they allow this kind of uh, covert recruiting to go on. To what extent did 9-11 play a key role in, in the way this has moved forward? I think it, it played a key role because it... A, it um, you know, universities after that didn't want to seem uh, unpatriotic, and the view of the intelligence agencies changed. You know, uh, I remember Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, uh, they had been close to the CIA, and then it turned out in the 90s that the, the president, uh, you know, was secretly doing work for the CIA, and uh, they kicked the CIA off campus, and then after 9-11, uh, they welcomed them back in, and you know, the CIA played a big role there and, and uh, you know, was suggesting topics for senior theses and the like. So uh, it's just, uh, and there's, there's been a lot more, you know, funding in this area from the government. There's academic centers for cybersecurity and all these kinds of programs that uh, universities, of course, uh, you know, love to get funding. And, of course, this works both ways because, as you talk about, foreign governments are looking at U.S. universities as vehicles for them obtaining information, as you talk about, for example, in the story of Glenn Shriver. Well, uh, yes, uh, Shriver was, uh, that. that's another aspect of it, that American students and professors who go abroad, uh, depending on where they go and what they're doing, are liable to be recruited by either domestic or foreign intelligence. And Shriver was a, uh, a student at uh, Grand Valley State in Michigan who went on a study abroad program to China, uh, fell in love with the place, learned the language, went back a number of times, and and after college, uh, right after college, was uh, recruited by Chinese intelligence uh, covertly. They they were pretending to be sort of Shanghai municipal government officials. To uh, they they paid him seventy thousand dollars to try and um, uh, enter the, uh, the the CIA, and he was caught and uh, and imprisoned. And but it was kind of worrisome because he wasn't somebody with you know uh, an amazing student or special stood out in any particular way, and uh, uh, it's kind of an average kid. So uh, it was kind of a signal that in you know in China at least and maybe other countries, American students were were vulnerable. And and also uh, foreign but foreign governments aren't just recruiting Americans when they get there. They they they're very active in in, in the U.S. I, I, I tell the story in my book of, a, of another uh, of a Chinese graduate student named Ruopong Liu, who uh, he went to went to uh, Duke and uh, was working there on on sensitive Pentagon-funded research about uh, how to build an invisibility cloak to hide our weapons, and and he basically uh, you know stole this research by various 
means. He brought in Chinese collaborators who photographed the equipment at Duke, and uh, he tricked a professor into committing to share his research in China. And uh, he started a website in China with the Duke research. And Duke finally woke up and took away his key to the lab, but they still gave him a doctorate. And then he went back to China and, with government support, started a company and an institute that you know, sort of compete with, with Duke and use its research, and uh, today he's a billionaire. Two of the issues that, that really lie inside all of this is the degree to which universities rely so heavily today on government contracts, number one, and also the degree to which universities rely on revenue from foreign students. Talk about both of those things. Well, you're right. I mean, they do rely heavily on, on federal funding and on uh, re- revenue from foreign students, and partly because there are other, other sources of revenue uh, in some cases are drying up or not doing as well. So for public universities, you know, many states have, have cut back their, their funding. And uh, for private universities, you know, the percentage of alumni who donate to universities has been uh, going down. So they get fewer, smaller gifts. So they're very uh, increasing reliant on big gifts from individual donors, on federal support for the kind of programs we're talking about, and their percentage of foreign students have, has gone up uh, because they pay full tuition. They don't uh, necessarily get as much financial aid as American students. And some public universities even have three tiers of tuition, you know, one level of tuition for in-state, one level for out-of-state, and a higher level for international students. Talk about the degree to which this is going on, not just at elite institutions, as we talked about the way it used to work, but it's going on in colleges and universities everywhere, both small colleges and large state universities. Yes, uh, that's I found examples of kind of uh, intelligence uh, activity or interest kind of pervading as you say, every level, the elite private schools, the state universities, and even a small liberal arts college. There's, there's Marietta College in Ohio, you know, tiny little college, kind of, you know, just in the middle America, and it unexpectedly has this very bizarre partnership with a university in Beijing called the University of International Relations, which is uh, partly funded and overseen by China's intelligence ministry and is uh, known in China for training China spies. And, and, and yet uh, Marietta sends its faculty over to teach there. It takes University of International Relations faculty over at Marietta. It takes uh, UIR students, you know, coming over for for a year or, or a semester to, to, to study at Marietta. And they have this very uh, close relationship. And the main reason is that Marietta has a small endowment and uh, the UIR helps it recruit full tuition paying Chinese students. So there's a financial motive. And the whole thing, it's fascinating, it was set up by this kind of mysterious professor at Marietta uh, whose father was a minister in Mao Zedong's cabinet, labor minister, very close to Mao, and who it turns out from some WikiLeaks documents that came out a few years ago is also uh, a U.S. Uh, government informant about Xi Jinping because he knew, you know, he knew the Chinese president uh, growing up. They were very close friends, and so this guy has ties to both the U.S. and Chinese governments, and he he set up this partnership. And the other funny thing is that, and this partnership extends in every way except one. Marietta doesn't send students to the University of International Relations because uh, 
it, it knows that if its graduates have that on their resume, they won't be able to work for the U.S. government, which is well aware that this is China's spy school. And so it sends its students to China to a, a different university. But, you know, it's hard to figure what exactly is going on, but it seems like one motivation for the University of International Relations to to send its people for, for to exposure to America, to, to Marietta College, is that, um, first of all, they probably couldn't get away with having a partnership with a high-profile university. Somebody w- would notice that mm. this school that you know, was linked to Chinese intelligence. And the other reason is that, that this gives uh, you know, China's future spies a sort of taste of American culture, you know, the minor league baseball and you know, barbecue and uh, uh, you know, the sort of everyday American life. They learn what it's like, and later they can fit in better. And on the other side of the, the educational equation, it's even going on in places like Harvard's Kennedy School, which is kind of ground zero for some of it. Yes, I mean, the Kennedy School is... Um, has a web of ties to the uh, CIA and has had for a long time. And what I discovered that's never been reported before, but has gone on for many years, is that uh, the CIA places uh, agents undercover in uh, the Kennedy School's mid-career program, which is about two-thirds foreigners. And they're future foreign leaders in, in business, in the military, in government. And what happens is, you know, a CIA intelligence officer has been overseas, you know, say that they're covered there as, a, you know, a diplomat, like a political officer in an embassy. Then uh, they're sent for training for a year to the Kennedy School, and they use the same cover. So, you know, and I looked at the old photo rosters of the Kennedy School of all the participants, and somebody would be listed as a political officer from an embassy, and yet, you know, I was able to find out that they were actually in the CIA. Sometimes, you know, afterwards they acknowledged it. Sometimes uh, uh, I interviewed them and they, they fessed it up. Sometimes, uh, you know, one guy died in his obituary, said, you know, legendary CIA agent dies, but his photo roster at the Kennedy School says, uh, you know, political officer, you know, embassy in Madrid. And uh, so what happens is they're there and, you know, they're they're rubbing elbows with these f- future foreign leaders who could become great assets for them overseas. And, and you know, these, these programs are all about networking. So they make contacts that the foreigner doesn't know that this person's from the CIA. They think they're, you know, going out for a beer with somebody from the State Department. How reliable has all of this been? You know, when we think back to what went on with respect to the OSS in the early days of the CIA and the Cold War, there was a certain intelligence, a certain reliability with respect to those elites that were recruited. When it's become as widespread as it is, as we're talking about, how reliable is the whole operation in that regard? Well, I mean, I think that in general the, the success rate is pretty low, but, you know, mm-hmm. if you get one really successful, uh, you know, agent that's, that's a, the asset, that that's a huge deal. So, I mean, you know, from the point of view of U.S. intelligence, I mean, yeah, a lot of the foreigners who they recruit, you know, may not actually help, and it might be easier to to agree to provide information when you're comfortably at a U.S. campus and it's a couple of years before you're going home than it is when you actually go home to go ahead and provide information. So, you know, I think it's a low success rate, but, you know, it can, you know, you can have a huge success. Like, on the other side, I mean, I, I, you know, the Cuba uh, 
uh, had a tremendous success with an agent who was recruited at a uh, U.S. campus, Johns Hopkins. So what happened was uh, there was uh, an, a, a, Mar- a Puerto Rican uh, student named Margarita Velasquez, a very bright young woman, the daughter of a uh, judge and law professor in Puerto Rico who sympathized with the Puerto Rican independence movement, and it kind of sees Cuba as a model, you know, of a, a, an island that stood up to the U.S. And she went to Princeton, uh, wrote a, you know, very uh, praising thesis about Castro, was recruited by Cuban intelligence, went to grad school for Johns Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins, and there she recruited Anna Bellin Montes, who was also of Puerto Rican descent, who eventually rose to become the top analyst in the U.S. government on Cuban policy and was kind of setting our Cuba policy while she was providing all sorts of classified documents about it to Cuba. And uh, she's probably the most damaging, you know, certainly Cuban mole ever in the U.S. government, maybe from any country. And she was successful for a long time until she was finally caught and sent to prison for 25 years. And very little had been written about Velasquez, so I focused on her. And she... After recruiting Montes, she ended up also in the U.S. government, in USAID in Latin America, which was a useful place for Cuba to have her. And then uh, when Montes was arrested uh, and pleaded guilty, so she's cooperating, Velasquez realized she would be named and that the jig was up. And she fled to uh, Sweden. Her husband was a Swedish diplomat. And I tracked her down there. She's teaching public high school in in Stockholm, even though she's... uh, under indictment in the U.S., it's uh, uh, there's no extradition agreement for espionage between the two countries. And the funny thing is, uh, I interviewed her at the principal, the school where she teaches, and it's a school that uses a curriculum from Cisco Systems out here in California. So they're always sending students and teachers on field trips to uh, uh, Cisco Systems and to California. And the principal said to me, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, we love Marta; she's a wonderful teacher, but you know, we we often ask her, you know, would you like to go back to the to the U.S. Uh, and join our field trips? And he says, for for some reason, he said she, you know, she never wants to to go. She never wants to chaperone on on these trips. She just wants to stay in Sweden. Of course, you know, I I knew why she she can't come back to the U.S. without being arrested for espionage. To what extent are there any formal ties between the FBI, the CIA, and and the universities? And how much of it is simply the universities looking the other way? Well, there is a kind of umbrella organization that was set up, a, a key figure in the reconciliation between U.S. intelligence and the universities was Graham Spanier, who's now unfortunately better known for his role in the Sandusky case, but uh, you know, was president of Penn State for about 15 years, and and uh, felt that he realized that you know U.S. intelligence was kind of skulking around on campuses, and he wanted to make it a more open relationship and let them go through the front door. And he founded something called the National Security Higher Education Advisory Board, which has 20 or 25 college presidents and uh, people from uh, FBI and, and CIA, and they brief the universities on their activities on campus. And in return, you know, the universities, you know, grant them access. And Spanier also helped by calling lots of colleges whose presidents weren't on NSHEB and saying, you know, the CIA is going to drop by tomorrow, you know, or the next week, and they'd like access to your campus. They want to interview these professors or these students or whatever. And he, he opened a lot of 
doors for the intelligence agents. Now, the problem was, you know, he thought that this meant that once they went through the front door, they wouldn't skulk around and go through the back door. But my, my sense is they do both. You know, when it suits them, they let the college know that they're coming. And when it doesn't suit them, they don't let the college know that they're coming. On the intelligence community side, how much of this effort is coordinated and well thought out versus how much of it is really ad hoc on the part of both the CIA and the FBI? Well, I'd say, you know, it's sometimes one and sometimes the other. Like, I think, you know, the CIA has a domestic division, the National Resources Division, and, you know, if they have a, a intelligence officer and one of their U.S. officers and the guy's got nothing to better better to do. We might, you know, print up some fake business cards, get a, you know, get a false identity, and go over to a campus and see if he can strike gold with a you know foreign student or professor, you know, and might have it might have a target in a given you know department or, or or field and and try that, or might go to an academic conference, you know, nearby, which would be full of scientists from all countries, and identify somebody interesting there and go there posing as a you know, as a scientist or a businessman or a consultant or something and uh, sidle up to somebody who might help U.S. intelligence and get a conversation going. So, you know, I mean, I think that's sort of part of the job description, but it's not planned by the agency. But on the other hand, there have been major agency efforts, you know. So one of them I write about is uh, when Iran, uh, before the Iranian nuclear agreement, one thing the CIA wanted to do to to slow down Iran's development of, of a nuclear weapon was to uh, get its top nuclear scientists to defect to the U.S. You know, so kind of uh, reduce the 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 key. You know, uh, make inroads among the key people that were Iran needed to build a bomb. And so, but you know, it's not easy to recruit these people in Tehran. So they set up academic conferences and kind of. Uh, outside Iran and the United States and in in Europe and so on, secretly funded by the CIA and tailored to the research interest of whatever Iranian scientists they wanted to defect. And then they would, you know, invite the scientists to come to the conference. And, you know, often the guy would come and with his handlers and they would separate him from his handlers and uh, try and talk him into uh, defecting to the U.S. So, I mean, that was a sort of... Uh, academic uh, strategy that was well thought out and, and expensive and uh, uh, in some cases successful. To what extent, if at all, are large global multinational businesses involved in any way in these efforts? That's something, you know, I didn't really uh, research and uh, I can't, you know, really give you a solid answer. I mean, obviously, for these academic conferences, you know, the CIA needed intermediaries, you know, they needed businesses and other institutions to be the ostensible, uh, you know, sponsors of the conferences. So uh, in that sense, they needed corporate support. Uh, another thing is that there's a whole, uh, you know, bunch of uh, companies that have sprung up as CIA fronts in dealing with academia. So that, for example, um, Let's say the CIA is interested in having a professor brief it on, you know, some important issue, you know, uh, a, a conflict in the Middle East or something. But that they know that professor 
doesn't want to have on his resume that he gave a talk to the CIA. You know, it might hurt him when he is trying to, uh, you know, do research overseas or something because of the CIA's reputation. So instead of the CIA staging the conference, uh, they do it through a front. Uh, the most uh, common one is, is Centra Technology. So then they can bring the professor in. The professor can tell them all about uh uh, you know, what's going on in the Middle East or Latin America or whatever the specialty is. And on his resume, he can, he can put, you know, uh, I gave a speech for Centra Technology and, you know, nobody's the wiser. Is there any consistency into how students, young people, whether they're international students, even domestic students, react to this today? Well, I mean, I think that it's widely um, divergent. Of course, I mostly heard about the cases where, where, you know, they express some interest or, you know, that those cases have blossomed into something. And, but I think that often, uh, first of all, they don't necessarily know, as I mentioned, the international students, that it's the CIA or the FBI recruiting them. It's usually somebody, you know, the person's posing as, as some, something else. So they may not know, and they, they may not know for, for a long time. You know, even when they go back to their home country, they they may not necessarily know that the, the person or place they're providing information to is, is U.S. intelligence, you know, they might just think that they're, you know, helping a U.S. business or uh, a consultant or something. So, so uh, they're not necessarily, you know, witting participants. And then, you know, I think it depends on, you know, their view of their home country, their view of their home government, and uh, also whether the CIA or FBI has any pressure points on them. Like, there's a professor at the University of South Florida named Dajin Pong who was of interest to the FBI because he had gone to that spy university I mentioned in China, which not everybody who goes there becomes a spy, and, and he probably didn't, but he'd gone there, and then he was director of South Florida's Confucius Institute, which these institutes of language and culture, which... Uh, are somewhat controversial as instruments of Chinese soft power, but they're funded and staffed by China, and the FBI thinks some of their people are spies. So the FBI was interested in him, and he got in trouble for financial transgressions and having porn on his computer and a bunch of other things. And uh, the FBI went to him, and they said, um, you know, you've got two choices. You know, you can... Uh, lose your professorship and, and go to prison uh, for your uh, financial wrongdoing. Uh, or you can, you know, we'll intercede with the university to make sure you keep your professorship, but you have to spy on China and on the Confucius Institutes for us. And they even asked uh, South Florida, uh, you know, would it set up a branch in China as a base for his spying? So, you know, in that case, I mean, he certainly didn't want to help the FBI, and uh, but... Uh, he really didn't have a lot of choice but to pretend to go along. And finally, what about the reaction from American students that are recruited or, or attempted to be recruited by foreign agents? Well, of course, in, in the Shriver case, he went along with it. I mean, you know, students are sort of young and impressionable, and in some cases, like Shriver, they tend not to know how deep they're getting in. So in that case, um, Shriver... He didn't, he didn't have any ideological reason for helping China. I mean, he needed the money they were paying him, and he thought he could manipulate them. He thought, well, I'll play Chinese intelligence. I'll take their money, but I won't help them. Well, of course, that's ridiculous because once they've paid you, you know, they own you. You know, they can blackmail you. You know, they can always say, if, if you don't help us, we're going to tell 
you know, the U.S. authorities that, you know, you're, you, you took money from Chinese intelligence. So, so he just, you know, these students, they're, they're young, they're uh, innocent, and often, they're, whether they're American or foreign, and they're often, uh, you know, out of their depth. And I think probably if they get involved like this, they, in their later years, they regret it. I mean, I think, obviously, Shriver regrets it. I think Margarita Velasquez, the, the one that's now teaching in Sweden, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's possible she might regret it, too. But, uh, you know, when you're, when you're 20 years old and uh, either you're ideologically vulnerable or you need money or you just have too much self-confidence and a taste for adventure, you can, you know, get into things that, you know, in, in your more mature years, you might think twice about. So, uh, you know, what happens is uh, that there's a, you know, whenever intelligence agencies operate, there's a lot of collateral damage, and these students and uh, sometimes also the professors can be can be the victims. And is it your sense this is going to continue to go on? Is there anything that's going to really push back against it? Oh, I think it'll continue to go on, and. Uh, probably even more intensively i mean you know now you know the 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 trump you know trump is you know so uh belligerent and unpredictable i'm sure foreign countries are frantically trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do next and so uh you know they're probably very eager to get intelligence and universities are one of the places they would go to try and find people who could who could tell them and uh uh, you know, for the for the U.S. side, I mean, I don't think, you know, this is a government that cares too much about the civil liberties of foreign students or professors. So um, I, I I doubt there's going to be a lot of breaks on what the uh, the CIA and FBI do. So yes, I, I think it'll go on and and uh, uh, if anything, intensify. Daniel Golden. His book is Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit American Universities. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Nice talking with you. Thank you.